Center. Tim Wright with you. And we're here with another edition of Tim's Takeaway. And this is going to be for the EMT. But just because it's for the EMT does not mean that if you're a paramedic or EMR or whatever, that you can't listen to this. Today, we are going to discuss some toxicological emergencies. You know, toxicology, even when I first started into EMS and the whole medical industry, was always something that I found to be very interesting. And it also is something that I believe is kind of complicated. The reason I think it's complicated is because when you take a look at toxicological issues or toxins and poisons, everything is dependent on what that individual may have taken. And therefore, we have to make sure that we define things and we have to make sure that we assess our patients appropriately so that we can help identify what our best treatment may be for these patients. You know, it is when we start taking a look at the, look at things like toxicology, that it is the study of what a poisonous substance may do. And oftentimes, I think we don't believe that some drugs or alcohol are really toxins or poisons. They just, they're there. Well, rest assured that a poison really is any substance whose chemical action can damage body structures or really impair a body function. If you start thinking about that, it does lead down to alcohol and medications and illicit drugs. A toxin is a poison, and it's typically produced by bacteria, animals, or plants, and it changes the normal metabolism of a cell, or it actually destroys them. So all the way back, talking about anatomy, the human body, physiology, these are the things that we talk about, and this is where toxins come into play. Now, when somebody abuses a toxin, we usually refer to this as something that is a substance abuse. And it's really comes down to the misuse of any substance to produce some type of desired effect. So if you think about it, alcohol, and I just choose that because it's most common that you hear in society today. But if you misuse it, you're trying to produce a desired effect of the way that you may feel about something. And oftentimes, these are complications that occur where people abuse it and it becomes an overdose. Or a patient may take or a person may take a toxic dose of a certain substance. Really, our primary job is to come in and recognize what type of poison has occurred. And it really becomes difficult for us to try and figure out each and every one. So one way that we can take a look at these things is to try and recall what the signs and symptoms of various poisons are 
and these are then going to be relayed to toxidromes. So when we look at a toxidrome, we're actually talking about looking at the various signs and symptoms of the toxins or the poisons that have occurred. And one way to do that or gather a lot of that information is to obtain that sample history. Find out some information from the patient. We need to take a look around and see if there are bottles that are empty or there are needles or syringes that might be around. Are there different pills that are all over the place? You know, there could be other types of chemicals or even remains of food or drink items that can cause a problem. And I have experienced times with patients that have taken some type of plant or the seed of a plant. Take a look around for the containers at the scene because they really provide a lot of information for you. You can look at the name of the medication. And I think oftentimes as EMS providers, we do a decent job of gathering the patient's medications and looking at them. But do we look at the concentration of the drug or the prescription strength of that medication? Let's take a household cleaner. We don't know what everyone is going to be. So are there specific ingredients that we need to take a look at? Are we talking about prescription medications or over-the-counter medications that come in a bottle? How many pills were originally there? Prescription medications are fantastic for us as, as being detectives at this point because you have the awesome ability to do a little bit of math. I know. I know. Well, all the way back to school and, and high school or grade school, and you're actually starting to apply a little bit of math. And we're trying to decipher that if the person just had the prescription filled three days ago and there were 30 pills in the bottle, we recognize that they've taken all of them. We recognize that. But what about if they took it 20 days ago and they had 90 pills in the bottle? You know, have they taken enough or have they taken too many? So we take a look at those things because they're clues. They're, these are things about our scene size up and our scene assessment that we take a look at. You might need to find out about the manufacturer or what that truly I just talked about a little bit ago about the prescribed dose. And I hear this all the time, you know, if the patient vomits, take a look at it and take a sample to the emergency room. Guess what, folks? They don't want to see that much either. It's not the coolest thing in the world. But what you need to do is take a look at that and see, is there food? Is it pill fragments? You know, I had somebody recently who had taken a whole bunch of pills and they happened to be caplets. And they had already dissolved or began to break down and dissolve in her stomach. And when she had vomited, the vomit was green. And when we took a look, it was the pills that were truly causing the problem. Yeah, it had already broken down. That's what gave us that green color, or gave her that green color. Which leads us down that whole pathway of how in the world do some of these things even enter into the body? Well, primarily, there are four routes that we need to consider. We need to consider inhalation, absorption, ingestion, and injection.
And it doesn't matter which one the patient has taken or how they have been absorbed. They all can cause life-threatening issues. So for inhaled poisons, one of the first things we need to do is get them out of that environment. But you also need to make sure that you're protecting yourself. You can't just go run in there and say, come on, sir, we're going to get you out of here. So think about carbon monoxide poisoning. What safety equipment do you have readily available to you to help protect you from just running into the scene? Or when you get into the scene and maybe you have a carbon monoxide meter that is on your first in bag and it alerts you that there is a low level or a high level of carbon monoxide in the residence. We need to get those folks to fresh air. And usually these folks also are going to require some type of oxygen administration. And if you suspect that maybe there is a toxic gas, then you need to call for a hazmat team potentially. You know, a lot of the times it may need to be a fire department that is just enough that that's all you need. Or are you going to need a hazardous materials team? I mean, if we start talking about different things such as um, meth labs, not to be confused with methadone, but meth labs, methamphetamines. These are very highly volatile areas in which you need a hazardous materials team to be able to come in and help secure that area. We need to be prepared for anybody who has had any type of inhalation to potentially support their ventilations with a bag valve mask. We need to also make sure that we have a suction unit readily available. And just one of those things to keep in mind, you know, that suction unit, you may have checked it at the beginning of your shift, but did you unplug it so that the battery is truly working to verify that that battery truly was working? You also need to be very aware that patients may also commit suicide in a vehicle. And this is actually one of the things you will hear called chemical suicide or detergent suicide. And really, that's one way. But another way is a traditional one that we've heard for a long, long time, which is leave the car running or leave the engine of a vehicle running in an enclosed space, and they can actually build up that carbon monoxide. Or as I said earlier about chemical or detergent suicide, where they mix some chemicals inside of the vehicle and, you know, it is actually causing their death. As a matter of fact, in our notes here, so if you were to pull this up, the notes directly inside of this episode of Tim's Takeaway is going to have a article from the National Library of Medicine or a link to the National Library from the National Library of Medicine in relationship to chemical suicide and some things that you can take a look at. We also have to be concerned about our own safety in those cases, and that's why I'm encouraging you to take a look at this link, because it is a hazardous materials issue. And if you open up the door, there's a very strong possibility that you could also be overcome with fumes and suffer the same type of toxic effects that the person that we're trying to help has succumbed to. Now, 
poisons that get on the surface or absorbed through our skin usually do so through mucous membranes or through the skin and it also can be through the eyes. We also have to take a look at maybe this is something that has occurred as a result of chemical burns or rashes or some type of systemic effect. So we have to find out about whether or not this was a liquid. Was this a powder? Um, do they have burns? Is it itching? Is there some redness to the skin? Any type of odors that we may find? One of those big issues that I think occurs with absorption is we have to make sure that we're not contaminating ourselves. But there's also a little challenge here because you have to decontaminate them. And when we decontaminate, we're talking about removing the contaminated material, which means that you're going to have to remove their clothing typically. So does this mean that you're going to try and take their shirt off over their head? Or do you need to cut that shirt because it could cause more contamination? Some things that we need to consider. And by the way, these are things that we can really go and try to practice and do yourself. So in a class that you may be taking or when you're home and you're like, hey, how can I do this? It could be as simple as taking baby powder and putting it on a shirt and say, can I take this off? If it's an old shirt, are you going to cut it and just see what happens with the powder that goes all over the place? By the way, if it is a dry powder, you can typically brush it off and then you just flush that whole area with some water and usually do that for about 15 to 20 minutes and then you need to make sure that you wash that with some soap and water. If it's liquid, you're definitely flushing this skin for up to 20 minutes. Now chemical issues, particularly if they are in the eye, really require a lot of irrigation and it needs to be done quickly. Now the good news is, is that if you're talking about a skull or a industrial location, they most likely have these wonderful little irrigation stations or the eyewash station is what you'll hear. Now if somebody's exposed to these things, what I would encourage you to do is really get the safety data sheets. Now you may hear a lot of people still refer to these as material safety data sheets or MSDS sheets, but our newer terminology for that is called a safety data sheet. And this gives you an awful lot of information about what that chemical is about, how you can treat it from a first aid standpoint. And by the way, as you're taking a look at some of these toxicological issues, and since we just talked a little bit about an MSDS sheet, that hazardous materials awareness course that all first responders are required to have from an EMS standpoint, EMR, EMT, AMT, paramedic, yeah, you all have to have those and they should be renewed every year. Well, you know what? Look at your ERG, your emergency response guide, or a couple apps you may be able to download. One is called Wiser, W-I-S-E-R. Great resource. Gives you more information than what just the ERG does. And by the way, the ERG is also included in that app. And of course, for me, I always like to push these things that are definitely free 
and this is something that is truly worth your free money. Yeah, I know, bad joke. Anyway, so when you take a look at some of those things, those are things you can really consider. You know, which way did those things get, which way did those toxins get absorbed? Now, ingestion accounts by about a strong majority. I mean, we're talking probably 75 to 90 percent of the time that you have any type of poisoning. It's done by mouth. And in children, this is typically accidental. Remember, children have a tendency to observe their world early on by putting things in their mouth. Adults, on the other hand, usually do these things deliberately. So look for what may be going on. And unfortunately, you know, this is when people are like, oh, well, tell me what the signs and symptoms may be. Well, there's problems with that. Again, go back to the intro where I said that, you know, it depends on the poison and what is the what agent did they use? Oh, and by the way, this is now bringing us back to where we had talked in pharmacology and back to the human body where age is going to play a factor. Why is it going to play a factor? Well, because the older that you get, the less, I don't want to say organized, but the less effective, how's that? The less effective those organs are going to be. So your liver or your kidneys or even the respiratory system may not be able to get rid of some of these toxins as well as they used to. By the way, look for burns around the patient's mouth because if they ingested something that was a, a toxic or, I'm sorry, a corrosive, they're going to have those burns. And they may complain of some um, belly pain and they may also have some vomiting. And by the way, keep in mind what burns on the way down is going to burn on the way up. You may need to get ALS there so that they can actually identify cardiac dysrhythmias. And by the way, as the, the recording of this we're in the midst of that whole scope of practice change at the national level where as an EMT, you are permitted from a national standpoint, you are permitted to obtain that 12 lead EKG and transmit it to the hospital. So those are things to consider. Now there is a medication or a counteractive medication that you may have the ability to utilize and that is called activated charcoal. Now, activated charcoal is something that you're going to need to remember about. However, activated charcoal really has fallen out of significant favor. And I've been in EMS for over 30 years. And I can tell you that I have given activated charcoal in the out-of-hospital setting maybe 10 times in, that in those 30 years. Now, I'll also tell you, though, that I can recall when I worked as a paramedic in a uh, hospital-based paramedic unit, and we were in the emergency room doing a lot of our skills, helping out folks, and we would give activated charcoal quite frequently because of poisons that were ingested. And we don't see that happen anymore, and one of the reasons why is because it really depends on how long that individual had taken the toxin. If it's already been absorbed into the bloodstream or into the tissues, the activated charcoal is not going to work very well. So typically you're talking less than an hour that you may consider the activated charcoal work and you can't use it. It's contraindicated in petroleum-based products. 
Now, people do inject poisons. And again, these are when people were using maybe IV drug users. But don't forget that our folks that are on insulin, diabetics, that rely on insulin are going to need to take injections as well. And one of the other things that you need to consider, and this kind of gets into a little bit of a, a goofy area because we don't think of snakes and bumblebees and uh, honeybees or really, they don't really sting you a whole lot. But anyway, they hurt like hell. Um, and those are things that we have to consider. You know, they are injecting poisons. So those things are also absorbed quickly into the body and we can't dilute them down. So it's not like I can put a, uh, an IV in and hurry up and run some fluid to try to dilute it down, it's really absorbed very quickly. So you need to keep an eye out on people at this point for a lot of nausea and vomiting because it's going to cause a potential problem with their airway. And if you're talking about people who may have had an allergic reaction or they have injected something into their body and you start to notice there is some swelling, make sure that you get off any bracelets or watches or rings that may be there. Because swelling can occur and now you're going to have a circulatory problem if the tissues swell up and now they can't get great perfusion because of this. By the way, one great aspect of trying to remove a ring from somebody's finger that is very tight is to use window cleaner. Yep, window cleaner. Just spray some window cleaner on, whether it's Windex or the non-brand Windex. Um, it works very well. And I have used it on calls before in which it really does help remove those rings and you may not have to cut it. So that's a story for another time, but just consider that, that Windex or the generic version of it will work well. So, you know, earlier I talked a little bit about looking at scene size up. So I'm also going to throw another link in here, and this is one that's really something that I would encourage you very highly to read. And it is in relationship to a position paper on fentanyl and a lot of the issues that we start to run into is it relates to heroin epidemics and what these folks are cutting with it. You know, it is a great read because it is evidence-based to a certain point, and it is a position that two toxicological groups have come together on and have come out and basically said, you know what, we agree that the scene needs to be safe. But the news media and some other folks have really jumped on the bandwagon and said, oh my gosh, this stuff is going to be absorbed into your body and you're going to die. The reality is no, and they're going to provide you with some information. Now, with that said... Does that mean that you should just abandon all your personal protective equipment? And of course, the answer to that is no. But utilizing gloves and potentially utilizing eye protection and when needed, looking at a surgical mask. And those are essentially the only things that you need. And, and quite frankly, we're used to using a lot of those things. Well, we hope that you are. So I encourage you to take a look at that. Again, that link is going to be attached to this episode. And if you can't find it, you can always shoot me an email 
at timr2715 at me, M-E dot com. That's timr2715 at me dot com. So, you know, take a look around. See what else is there. Um, keep an open mind when you start questioning people. If you don't keep an open mind, you're going to start jumping to conclusions. On the other hand, if it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, and walks like a duck, it probably is the toxin that you're suspecting. Our primary assessment is going to be the same airway, breathing, circulation. And I can't stress this enough if you find somebody who is unconscious. It then switches to circulation, then airway and breathing. And by the way, if they're bleeding when you walk in the door, it's pretty much, think of March, massive hemorrhage, airway, breathing, circulation type deals. Oh, yeah. The H is the uh, hypothermia. You want to make sure that you keep people warm. Transport decisions. And I hear this an awful lot. We've got to do rapid transport. Absolutely, I get that you have to do rapid transport. But rapid transport does not mean just pick them up and throw them into the back of the ambulance. This is not 1966 when the white paper came out. This is today. This is in the 2000s. This is when we're talking about the fact that we can still treat people. And we can identify a lot of these things and take care of our folks. Sample, OPQRST, absolutely. But now you may need to get a little bit more in depth, such as what did you take? When did you become exposed to this? Do you know what it was? You know, were you exposed to chlorine? If the patient took it on purpose or accidentally, how much did they take? How long a period of time did it take for that person to become exposed to it? Have you done anything to try to intervene with this and has it helped and then it's always important to understand and ask how much the patient weighs because quite frankly we suck at estimating weights ask them so ask them how much they weigh and by the way we usually look at these things in in kilograms so whatever they tell you in pounds you need to divide that by 2.2 and that'll give you what your kilograms are you're like, well, I'm not good with decimals, Tim. That's okay. Use your smartphone. We know that's what you're going to use anyway. That's what I do. So make sure that you're following those standard precautions and do some type of decontamination if need be. If there's fragments of, of tablets inside of the patient's mouth, then you need to clear them out. Um, you may need to brush some poison off of the patient's skin. Again, we talked about some activated charcoal earlier, but again, it's not indicated for individuals where they have any type of alkali, cyanide, ethanol, lithium, methanol, or some type of organic solvent. So um, those are problems. You know, you may not know what people take. By the way, the usual dosage for adult or children in activated charcoal is about one gram of activated, of activated charcoal per kilogram of body weight. So again, go back to what you just saw and try to determine what their body weight is, and it gives you an idea of their treatment. I would encourage you to go back and take a look at the pharmacology 
and review what you need to in relationship to activated charcoal. You know, over time, patients who usually are abusing the medications or abusing the substance are going to need more of this to achieve the same result. They've developed a tolerance to the substance. So we have to make sure that we're expecting the unexpected from a lot of these folks. Drug users can have a potential problem because they pose a lot of threats to us because they may have non or undiagnosed hepatitis ABC or they may have HIV or which has now progressed to AIDS. They may also have TB. So these are things that we need to consider. Those are the ones that we usually worry about. But I got to tell you, it goes back to alcohol. And alcohol really is one of those things that um, we get called for quite frequently. And it is truly one of the things that aggravates me probably the most is individuals that are intoxicated with alcohol. It damages the liver. Chronic overuse really causes a problem. People can binge drink. Sometimes binging can be a whole heck of a lot worse because it depends on how long they're binging. It is a sedative, so it does cause some types of hypnotic states where people will become very sleepy. It dulls your sense of awareness and it does slow down your reflexes. People may also become aggressive and they have a tendency to have a little lack of coordination and oftentimes they will have inappropriate behavior. So if they appear to be intoxicated, you know, they could have other medical problems as well. Look for trauma. Look for uncontrolled diabetes. Look for that low blood sugar or that potential high. It's most of the time low blood sugar that you end up finding them with. This could also be some type of behavioral issue. Alcohol can also cause a problem and increase the effects of a lot of the other drugs that people take. If you read the bottles of just common over-the-counter medications that you may take, it will tell you do not take with alcohol. Sometimes folks that are running into problems, particularly with this, they end up with, as it is, a depressant. They can have some problems with uh, decrease in respiratory drive. And it may also cause some vomiting. So therefore, it causes a problem with airway management again. Now, people may also go through alcohol withdrawal, and they can have hallucinations or they can have DTs, which are refer shortened for delirium tremens. Those are folks that are usually a lot of uh, agitation, restless. They become very sweaty. Uh, they have some tremors, become confused. They may have hallucinations, as I said earlier. Um, fever may result. And then, of course, seizures. And those are usually one of the things we're really most concerned about. So these conditions really can develop uh, the DTs can, can develop after somebody stops drinking and they do this suddenly. This is enough to be a life threat. So we have to promptly transport them and of course we also want to make sure that we're providing some type of emotional support. The opioids 
these are usually narcotics. These are things that actually help produce sleep or some type of altered mental status. Most of the time, you're going to hear that narcotics are used for pain relief. And an opiate, though, is part of an opioid family. And we can have natural, or which come from the poppy seed, or we can have synthetics. And really, prescription opioids are really one of the most commonly abused drugs that occur in the United States. And people can become physically dependent on it. And the big thing is here is, is that they do have a lot of central nervous system depression. And as a result of that, it does reduce their tidal volume for breathing. And then their body is unable to compensate for it. And as a result of that, they build up more carbon dioxide and they eventually go into respiratory depression and then respiratory failure and respiratory arrest. And sometimes these things occur very quickly. Tolerance develops just like everything else. And one of the big issues that these things can cause is nausea, vomiting, constipation, and it may also cause some hypotension depending on what kind of the medication they have taken. Check for those pupils. Most of the time, not in every opiate, but in most of the time these folks have pinpoint pupils. One of the reversal agents is Narcan or Naloxone. And this is a medication that can be given IV, it can be give, given IM, or it can be given IN or that intranasal route. Intranasal seems to be one of those that has been used quite frequently for patients that have had an overdose of a narcotic. But there is one awesome treatment that works well for them, and that is a bag valve mask. Folks, they're not breathing. Most of the time, it's as a result of high levels of carbon dioxide that has been accumulating in their body. And when we start to lower that through effective ventilation, guess what happens? They wake up. And most of the time, they're usually at that point a little bit nicer because it is more of a hypoxic and hypercarbic area. Yeah, if you're not sure about that, go back and take a look in your medical terminology books or your medical terminology chapter. Sedative hypnotic drugs such as barbiturates. You may hear people refer to benzos and barbiturates, benzodiazepines. These are something that's pretty easy to obtain, and these are also central nervous system depressants, and they make people feel very drowsy and intoxicated. Sometimes these are used for sedation, you will hear people who are given knockout drugs or um, something that's going to incapacitate somebody. Really, one of our biggest issues with this is, is that this may be something such as Valium. This is just a great example of something that you may be looking at. Inhalants, things that people are going to inhale, such as toluene. You know, people will inhale glues, cleaning compounds, paint thinners, lacquers. People will use gasoline or Freon. These are all commonly abused inhalations. It can look at hydrocarbons. And these are things that really cause problems with the heart. And um, it can cause fatal dysrhythmias. 
they may struggle against you and this can cause even more of a problem. So make sure that you know you're not making these people exert themselves because they've inhaled an awful lot and get them on your stretcher and treat them appropriately. Hydrogen sulfide might be another one. Hydrogen sulfide is something that's pretty toxic. It's colorless and flammable. And usually it has this rotten egg odor. And that's usually the hallmark for it. So it does have a lot of effects on the organs, but remember it's going to cause biggest problems because it's inhaled oftentimes. It's going to be a problem with the lungs. It's also going to be a problem with the central nervous system. It is also something that is used in those chemical or detergent suicides that I had mentioned earlier. These are folks that may experience some nausea, vomiting, confusion, or shortness of breath. And once that patient has been decontaminated, a lot of times we're treating them is mainly supportive. So we monitor the respiratory status and their heart or their cardiovascular status. Another toxin you may hear of is the sympathomimetic, which basically means that these things or these medications or these toxins mimic the effects of the sympathetic nervous system. Now, if you recall, the sympathetic nervous system is at fight or flight. This is that release of epinephrine. So everything gets hyper. They develop hypertension. They develop some tachycardia. Their pupils become dilated. They're really excited. Ecstasy is a common thing that you can take a look at for this. Methamphetamines or amphetamines may also be problems. Cocaine. And remember that cocaine not only can be smoked as an inhalant, it may also be something that they are snorting and therefore it's being um, put in their nose and it's being absorbed through the mucous membranes. So this is really a big emergency because it can cause a problem with potentially cause myocardial infarctions. It may cause strokes. People may become hallucinate. They may hallucinate. They may become paranoid. And we really need to make sure that we have some type of law enforcement support there. Prompt transport to the hospital is of utmost importance as well. Bath salts are a similar characteristic of, of what MDMA or ecstasy may be. But these issues produce a lot of euphoria and uh, may produce some sexual arousal. This can be snorted, and its effects can last as long as maybe two days. They will grind their teeth. They will have some muscle twitching. They'll smack their lips, a lot of confusion. Paranoia is the biggest thing that I have seen with these, and they may also hallucinate. So you got to try to keep the patient calm and transport them. You may need to consider getting ALS there as quickly as you can. Marijuana. One of the most abused substances throughout the United States as well as the world. THC is the chemical that is found in there in the plant that actually produces the high. And just because THC may not be there, you'll hear people talk about cannabis oil. And those things can cause us a problem as well. But a lot of times with marijuana, it can cause a short-term memory loss and uh, the capacity to actually do a lot of complex thinking and work. The euphoria progresses to depression and eventually can cause a lot of confusion. They can hallucinate a lot. 
become paranoid, very anxious. And marijuana may also be a way in which other drugs can get into the body. You know, um, putting cocaine in it. So not only are they smoking marijuana, they're also smoking a little bit of crack that may be mixed in with it. People will oftentimes say they got the, the uh, way that they can fix these is making them edible. So you hear brownies all the time. and These are where food additives have been placed in and mixed with the marijuana. And so therefore they can also be ingested. And people can end up with uh, cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, which has been characterized by chronic marijuana use, and they end up with extreme nausea and vomiting. And it's really only relieved maybe potentially by getting a hot shower or a bath. And, you know, these are issues that you will hear people say, well, it's supposed to help me, but in reality, it can also hurt you. Spice is the synthetic version of marijuana. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been to a conference or a lecture in which I uh, knew a physician who was talking about bath salt, or I'm sorry, spice, and her comment was stop with the synthetic stuff. Just use the real stuff. It's much safer. And absolutely right. You know, it causes a big time problem, um, and they end up with a complete loss of consciousness, and they can ultimately die from it. Um, hallucinogens, this is something that's going to alter a person's sensory perception. This is something like LSD. And they have hallucinations and they have in, intensifying issues with their vision and hearing. And you will hear people say, oh, I've had a bad trip. This is where they develop a high blood pressure and a fast heart rate. And they're very anxious and paranoid. You notice paranoia goes with a lot of these. So your care here for these folks is to try to be very calm with them, provide some emotional support. You may have to restrain them and get some help from ALS because if you get some advanced levels of care there, they may be able to help um, utilize some medications to actually help calm them down. Anticholinergic agents are also some toxins that we need to, may need to take a look at. This is somebody who may have taken um, a lot of um, anticholinergic medication. And this is something that blocks the parasympathetic nervous system. So you will hear the phrase that I've heard a lot, which is as hot as a hair, blind as a bat, dry as a bone, red as a beet, and mad as a hatter. You know, take a break with some of those things and you'll figure out exactly what it is that they're looking at. They're hot, they can't see very well. Uh, you know, the really dry mouth, their skin is very red, and they can also become very violent and mad. Amitriptyline or Benadryl, atropine can always cause these problems, and atropine may be something that you find in their eye medications. Some uh, tricyclic antidepressants also have some anticholinergic effects. And unfortunately, with tricyclic antidepressants, these people can go from being normal to having a seizure, and within um, a half hour, they can truly be dead. Now, cholinergic agents are agents that overstimulate the normal body functions that are controlled by the parasympathetic nervous system. Oftentimes, you will hear these things referred to as nerve gases, but we like to refer to them as organophosphate poisons. These are 
potentially chemicals that are used in warfare or even in insecticides. So one of my favorite mnemonics to remember with this is called sludgem, where they have salivation, lacrimation, urination, defecation, gastric upset, emesis, and they can also have muscle twitching. Most important thing to consider here is to assure that you're not exposing yourself and you need to get a hazardous material team there. Now there are antidote kits that may be available if you have been exposed to these things and those are the duodote kits or the duodote auto injectors. So from an EMT standpoint, if you go back and uh, recall that when we get into pharmacology, we are talking about this would be a peer assisted medication. That's right, because you're able to give it to your peer or your partner. Now this kit does contain some atropine and that is one of the most common things that you will hear. The 2PAM is the other part that would be mixed in with it. Now there are also other medications that people may actually do things with, and this may be accidental or could be intentional. Cardiac medications or um, beta blockers for somebody's high blood pressure, calcium channel blockers, same type of deal. Got to be careful about aspirin as well. Aspirin overdoses, people are not paying attention to the bottles that they have readily available when they buy something over the counter. It can cause some nausea and vomiting, a lot of tinnitus or ringing of the ear. They develop some confusion. They may have uh, seizures later on. And if they overdose a lot of times with this, it also comes with um, an overdose of acetaminophen. Um, and these are uh, medications that are pretty common. You know, uh, you, you were talking about going to the store and, you know, you take acetaminophen and then you read the contents of some of the multi-system or multi-symptom cold medicines. And people are now taking additional medications that they weren't aware of because they didn't read the ingredients. You know, I'd be remiss if we didn't address some toxins such as food poisoning. Um, salmonella. Usually you're talking about some severe GI issues, usually occur within about three days of that ingestion. They develop some nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, and of course the wonderful diarrhea. And one way to help fix this is to make sure that we're cooking things properly, that we're cleaning things in the kitchen, and we're making sure that we're not cross-contaminating. More commonly, one of the bacteria that we run into is going to be uh, Staphylococcus, which is something that is produced in toxins in food, and it's usually left in foods that are unrefrigerated. These, again, result in, in GI problems, usually nausea, vomiting, diarrhea that occur a couple hours after that individual has ingested the food, but can also go up to about 12 hours later. Botulism you hear in relationship to people that have not properly canned food. So therefore, these are becoming a problem. And these are people that end up with some blurred vision, weakness, difficulty speaking and breathing. And usually these symptoms develop within about four days after ingestion. So you try to get as much of a history for people that have had acute GI issues 
And keep in mind that if you have two or more people that are ill at the same time in the same place, you really need to consider the fact that it was from food. Finally, plants. You know, there are so darn many plants that we can talk about. And most of them cause some type of skin irritation. Some can affect the circulatory system. And I'll just bring this one right back around and say, digoxin comes from a plant. And therefore, that's how they used to actually prescribe it. It is a cardiac medication. And a lot of times when it comes to plants, it is very difficult to try to figure out what exactly it is that they're looking at. So it's very difficult to memorize every one of them. Again, as you go through all these toxins, one of the biggest issues is, is that remember the toxidromes. That's going to get you into the ballpark as to what may be wrong with our patient. So, I think with that, we have just finished up another edition of Tim's Takeaway. And again, this is Complete Toxicology. Check out some of the other ones that are on Enjoy, and let me know if you need anything else. Have a good one.